Hey there, and welcome to episode number 172 of Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. This is also episode number three of our podcast within a podcast, covering Marvel's 1970s horror characters, Monster by the Month. And so it's once again time to join us on an adventure into fear from the Tower of Shadows to the Chamber of Darkness, where creatures roam on the loose and monsters dwell on the prowl. We are your horror hosts for the evening. My name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Milne. And I'm Jamie Wenger. So uh, the issues that we're going to be talking about this episode all hit the newsstands uh, between about November 1971 and February of 1972. Uh, And gentlemen, for this episode, we are joined by a true legend of horror comics. He was a member of the very first graduating class of the Kubert School and was published in the pages of Heavy Metal and Sergeant Rock before he even got his diploma. In 1983, penciled a little story you might have heard of uh, in uh, Saga of the Swamp Thing number 21 called The Anatomy Lesson. And with Alan Moore, Rick Veach, and John Tottlebin proceeded to turn the comics world on its ear. His Eisner Award-winning horror anthology, Taboo, featured a who's who of 80s and 90s independent creators, including Mobius, Neil Gaiman, Chester Brown, and Charles Vess. It was the original home of Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell. Writer, teacher, lecturer, scholar, Inkpot Award winner, and five-time Jack Kirby Award recipient, coming to us all the way from the Mountains of Madness in Vermont. Steve Bissett, thank you so much for joining us for Monster by the Month. Thanks for having me. It's a, an honor to be here. I was a junior in high school uh, when the comics we were going to be talking about came out. Wow. Whoa. So you, you were reading these at the time they were coming out? I was, you know, I, I had, once I turned 16, I worked very hard to get my driver's license. And that, <laughs> that summer, I mean, I'm in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, so the drive-ins are closed over the winter. But during that summer and the following summer, my habit was... Um, to go to the drive-in, catch a, anywhere from a double to a triple to a Dawn the Dust show bill, and I would hit whatever local grocery store there was, buy whatever comics were on the rack, and, you know, some candy and soda and so on. You couldn't drink yet. 21 was the age in Vermont at that time to drink. Mm-hmm. And uh, head to the drive-in. So, um, you know, a lot of these Marvel comics that you're talking about were comics I bought right up the newsstand and read before whatever the double, triple, or Dust to Dawn show was that was about to run at the drive-in. That's amazing. So uh, do you remember reading these for the the first time and, and what your reaction was to these books? Uh, well, bear in mind, I mean, I was born in 1955, mm-hmm. so we didn't see any pre-code horror comics. Um, right. The horror comics I grew up with, which people tend to forget, um, were uh, Classics Illustrated, World Around Us specials, and... Mm-hmm. Um, Dell Comics, because Gilberton and Dell were the only two companies that did not sign up with the code. Hmm. Um, so, you know, prior to my being nine, ten years old, when Creepy and Eerie hit the newsstands, mm-hmm. uh, it was Dell Comics. Um, they got the licenses for the Universal Monsters. So Dracula, Frankenstein, The Creature, uh, The Wolfman, one-shot comics, mm-hmm. and those incredible John Stanley Tales from the Tomb and Ghost Stories number one, and Classics Illustrated, because they did not subscribe to the code, they kept in print their adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with the Norman Saunders painted cover, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, uh, those were the horror comics I grew up with. So, 
creepy and eerie were big for me. I mm -hmm. had kind of lost interest before Vampirilla hit. Um, and then it was Undergrounds. Mm -hmm. So to me, when the Marvel, you know, when the code changed, which I was not aware of at the time until I began to see comics like Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night on the stands, that's when I knew, oh, you know, something's happened here with the code. Much as I bought and enjoyed them, they were pretty weak tea compared to Skull, Slow Death, you know, the stuff that was coming out from, from the underground publishers. Oh, yeah. And that's the stuff that made me want to draw comics. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I did enjoy that sudden, you know, explosion of four-color um, horror comics for the first time. Because prior to that, it was really Charlton, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, even the so-called mystery books from D.C., you know, they weren't horror. It was John John's Manhunter from Mars and Eclipso that starred in House of Secrets and House of Mystery. <laughs> um, but that was also the first, you know, sort of signal flare was seeing those Joe Orlando edited House of Mystery, House of Secrets. Then the Marvel stuff hit. And uh, as I said earlier, the timing was perfect for me. My reaction to the comics was great affection because they tied in so closely to the movies I was seeing at the drive-in at the time. There was this right. explosion of vampire movies. Um, we were starting to see the Paul Nashie Spanish werewolf movies at the drive-ins, only they would come out under titles like Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, even though there's no Frankenstein. And no <laughs> it's a werewolf movie. So, you know, these um, these Marvel comics and the handful of DC books, my favorites being, of course, Swamp Thing and um, Jack Kirby's The Demon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was it was a fun time to be picking up comics off the newsstand and not knowing what was going to pop up where. And uh, I mean, talking about sort of like the alternative side of things, like so you uh, one of your early publishers uh, was Marvel. But back when Marvel was a lot more open to publishing, you know, comics outside of the shared Marvel universe, you know, uh, develop <laughs> continue developing our intellectual property for us uh, type model. Um, and, and Epic Illustrated had a few of your stories in it. Um, yeah, but I yeah. did even more work. I mean, I only had two stories in Epic, which I'm mm -hmm. very proud of. One in collaboration with my best friend, Rick Beach. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a story called Monkey Sea that was in Epic Illustrated number two. Uh, Rick Beach, by the way, I think is the only artist who was in every single issue of Epic. Wow. Uh, the, the one issue of Epic that Rick did not have an original story in, he colored the Silver Surfer story. Um, <laughs> and that, that means Rick was in every issue of Epic. That's um, amazing. <laughs> but, but the Marvel the the Marvel title I did more work for turned out to be uh, Bizarre Adventures. They're black mm, and white. That's now. right. Mm -hmm. uh, when it started, when I started at Marvel, the editor who gave me my first gig up there was Rick Marshall. Mm -hmm. um, and then when Rick Marshall, I mean, Marvel being Marvel, they very unceremoniously bounced Rick. He went to, uh, he was at one of the big comic conventions, I believe San Diego, and they cleared out his office while he was in San Diego. Oh, what? That's how Marvel handled things. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So I found out, oh, I've lost my editor, and I thought I lost my freelance gig, but um, Lynn Graham took over, and then Denny O'Neill. Oh, so okay. Yeah, I that's pretty up, good. I yeah. ended up doing three or four things for Bizarre Adventures. Gotcha. Um, yeah. including a Dracula story uh, with my late friend Steve Perry, who scripted it, called uh, The Blood Request. We we invented the real origin of Marvel's Dracula uh, with that story, <laughs> the, the Blood Bequest. It was about um, 
a prehistoric vampire, a Gigantopithecus who had been vampirized. So it Whoa. was the, the pre-caveman primal vampire. Nice. <laughs> Wait, oh, you, you did a, a dinosaur story? That seems off-brand. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't dinosaur. Age oh, okay. of mammals. Age of mammals, my friend. We were scientifically accurate. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, I, I mostly uh, brought up Epic Illustrated uh, just because I was trying to uh, shoehorn um, Archie Goodwin into the conversation. Uh, we, oh, well, yeah. Let's talk about Archie. And we, Archie Yeah, scripted, we love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And Archie scripted, uh, I think, two issues of The Tomb of Dracula. Um, is it one of the issues we're talking about today? No, Jerry Conway did these Jerry two. Jerry Conway launched yeah. these two. Okay. We'll talk mm-hmm. about those in a moment. But Archie, uh, I was very fortunate to to meet and uh, become friends with Archie Goodwin. I only got to work with him once as an editor. He edited the story Cults mm. that I did for Epic Illustrated number six. But I benefited from the fact that, you know, Rick Veach, uh, who I mentioned a few moments ago, really bonded with Archie. Archie became like Rick's second mentor, uh, mm. with Joe Kubert being, you know, Rick's and my first mentor mm-hmm. uh, from our two years at the Kubert School. Um, Archie, Archie was one of the best, one of the four best editors I had the good fortune to work with. And, um, he was just such a, you know, sweet, soft-spoken, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't wearing his ego on his sleeve. Mm. Um, when I, uh, proposed the story cults that ran in, uh, Epic number six, um, it didn't quite work. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I still I, I, I was a pretty good writer. I've been writing short fiction since um, grade school. But, you know, I, I, I had gone to a couple of Vermont schools. I, I wasn't a trained writer. And Archie took a look at my layouts and, you know, um, bought the story. There was enough there that he bought it. And I think it was at the penciling stage when I brought up the pencils. Um, Archie had a way of indicating to you where something needed to be without uh, uh, inserting himself or being assertive. He Mm. sort of said, you know, think about if a panel went here and a light bulb went off my head and it was exactly what the story needed. It literally needed like one more image to work. Cool. Archie recognized that he knew it. And rather than being the kind of editor who would go, no, you need to do this. You know, he would coax it. He wanted you Mm-hmm. to make the connection because you were going to do a better job if you were the one that did the connection. And again, mm-hmm. it wasn't about ego. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very different from uh, the editorial style that I had um, gotten used to with Joe Kubert because Joe being a cartoonist as well as a writer editor um, and we were a student. So Joe would lay tracing paper over your work and he would show you, you know, it would work better if you did this. Mm-hmm. Um, Archie never, I mean, Archie just would like steer you to recognizing the blind spot and coaxing out of you <laughs> what would take care of that blind spot in your story. It was amazing. That's, That's cool. incredible. I have to say, for those of you, I, I take it none of you ever got to meet Archie. I never did, no. Um, when, when, uh, when we went to see the first of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, um, and I did not see it in a theater with my friend Rick Beach and his wife, Cindy Leszczak. But we were on the phone within 24 hours. We had both <laughs> separately. Oh. And Gary Oldman looks and sounds exactly like Archie Goodwin. I mean, it's creepy. Whoa. Uh, we were both on the phone like, could it be? Like, could Gary Oldman have 
<laughs> and we couldn't make sense of it. Like, there's no way we could conceive of this, you know, British actor ever having met Archie Goodwin. Yeah. But and wedging him into Commissioner Gordon as a role, right? You know. Yeah. Well, well, and he, you know, he looked like Archie. He had Archie's, you know, pre-cancer era mustache. He spoke like Archie. The personality. I mean, it. It. Whoa. It's a movie I've only revisited once because, you know, it's it's a little creepy to. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a wonderful way, but it's like, oh my god! And so, if you want to get a sense of Archie. You know, Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon in those those two Batman movies. It, it's uncanny. Oh my wow. gosh! Yeah, <laughs> that's so sweet. It's a good reason to rewatch this. So now, well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, and how cool to have a chance to to work with Rick Veach, like your buddy, you know, who you had, you know, you'd come up with together. Oh, uh, Rick! I, mean, I can't imagine. My- Brian, Rick <laughs> saved my ass. Okay? You know, Rick and I still live close enough uh-huh. that, you know, but at that time, if, you know, I would call Rick and say, hey, Rick, can you spare a day? Can you spare two days? And he would drive down or I would drive up. And mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I could freeze on 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 pages I'd laid out and sitting down in the studio with Rick would get it going again. Sure. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a crutch on the one hand, but on the other hand, Rick was part of the team from the start. I mean, it was Rick and John Tottleman, really, who had begun spinning ideas for Swamp Thing before we started on the book. When our wow. buddy Tom Yates, uh, Tom Yates was the first artist on Saga of the Swamp Thing. He worked mm-hmm. with um, uh, the first writer on the book, Marty Pasco. Uh, Marty Pasco, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and we can use that as a segue to talk about these Marvel comics because really Marty Pasco's run on Swamp Thing um, much like Jerry Conway, you know, doing the first few issues of Tomb of Dracula, um, Jerry Conway launching Man Thing, Jerry Conway launching uh, Werewolf by Night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were building on the bedrock that um, Marty Pasco and Tom Yates had laid with their run on Saga of the Swamp Thing. And then we got to take it to another level once <laughs> Alan Moore was on board. And I have to tell you, you know, the model that was in my head very consciously, because I had read them as they came out, I had kept the set, I still have the whole run, were those 70 issues of Tomb of Dracula. Because um, I love those early issues. I'm glad we're talking about them today, because you can see the the discomfort in the first five or six issues, where, yeah. you know, Jerry Conway's laying the groundwork, uh, Archie Goodwin steps in, and then Gardner Fox, one of the old-school... Uh, pulp science fiction, pulp fantasy, and uh, comic book authors who had worked with DC on tons of stuff with Julie Schwartz as the editor. You know, they, none of them quite fit. You can, mm-hmm. you, it's, it's not just hindsight. I remember as I was reading at the time thinking, they don't know what to do with Dracula. You know, they yeah. got this yeah. great, they got this great character and they don't know what to do with it. And then when Marv Wolfman came on, within two issues, bam. You know, yeah. Marv was running with it. And the fact that Gene Colan penciled every single issue. Yes. Um, and even there, you can feel the discomfort with the inkers, too. You know, like Vince oh, yeah. Coletta. Eh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, Vince Coletta did a pretty good job on Gene sure. Colan. You know, Gene mm-hmm. Colan's a hard penciler to ink. He, yeah. And, and I uh, I appropriated a lot from Gene Colan's work. I mm. I had been reading Gene Colan since I was a kid, especially his Wash stories uh, for Archie Goodwin in Creepy and Eerie. I love that stuff. And Gene Colan was the only cartoonist in North America at that time 
that was working with aspects of um, photography, where Gene was the one that would blur motion. Like if there was violent activity, rather than going for the power in the violence, the way that Jack Kirby did, and almost all the artists at Marvel were trying to emulate Jack Kirby's, you know, very masculine expression of raw power. Colin was going with um, blurring the the movement. It was mm -hmm. like you, it, and and it it was perfect for Tomb of Dracula. It was perfect for a horror comic that when there was hyperactivity, you weren't sure what was going on until it was done. Yeah. yeah. And if you look back at my work on Swamp Thing, you know, that's what I was doing, especially that whole Floronic Man, that three-issue arc with the mm -hmm. Floronic Man. Look at that whole chainsaw sequence. And I was copping those licks from Gene Colan of <laughs> hide from the reader the consequence of the moment of violence until after it's done, where you yeah. see Swamp Thing is literally splintered the Floronic Man's arm. Um, yep. And it wasn't so much imitation or even homage on my part. It was an aesthetic mm -hmm. that I loved. And it was very, it was a very cinematic um, aspect that yeah. does fit the comics medium. There's a lot of aspects of cinema that have nothing to do with comics. Yeah. That, oh, that well. blurring the, the violent moment is a very Hitchcock psycho, you know, move. Of, uh, I yeah. mean, that's the epitome of that sort of, you know, well, it's not only Let, let's look at those tomb of Dracula's. One of the great absurdities of all vampire and werewolf everything is what the fuck happens with the clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what Gene did, what Gene did from like the first and second issue he penciled is Dracula's cape. It flows like a living thing. Mm -hmm. And Gene made it kind of make sense that Dracula's cape was as much part of his organic entity when he would transform into a bat as anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the first time that visually made sense, right? Mm -hmm. Logically, yeah. it makes no sense. There's <laughs> right, no... Yeah. Right. And it fails um, in one of the issues we're talking about. There's another vampire character who also changes to a bat. And it doesn't work when it's a guy in tweeds with a cap, right? <laughs> um, but my point is that aesthetic of Gene Colan, of, of how he delineated movement, made Dracula work as a character in a way he had Dracula had never worked in films because mm. it was always a problem. Uh, you know, what were the first films that had Dracula transforming? It would have been um, the universal movies from the forties, right? House of Dracula. Um, and then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, John Fulton, the special effects master at universal would use animation to actually show a bat change to Dracula and vice versa. But the clothes just made it absurd, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, it's it's like in werewolf movies where they're looking at wolf tracks and then they turn to shoes, and it's like, wait a minute, yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Wouldn't it just be like a human naked footprint, you know? Um, and and Gene Gene's uh, you know basic aesthetic as an artist organically made that uh, work for the first time in any visual media adaptation of Dracula. Oh, and God. and that's part of that's what I was emulating was that there was that that aesthetic of Gene Colan's work. So yeah, wow. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, we can't wait to dive into these comics with you. Uh, first, we're going to take a very quick break, uh, and when we return, we're going to talk about the Marvel monsters of the winter of 1971-1972 right here on Monster by the Month. <laughs> 
Hey there. This show is 100% ad-free and supported by listeners like you who subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash marvelbythemonth. Our Patreon supporters are the ones who actually make it possible for us to make Marvel by the Month week in and week out. Every episode of Monster by the Month, including this one, has an extended version with deep dives and more of your favorite guests that you don't get in the public feed. And it's not just the Monster by the Month episodes. There are more than 50 extended and exclusive episodes in our Patreon bonus feed featuring guests like Mark Evanier, Paul Kuppenberg, Tom Brevoort, Dennis Kitchen, Brian Michael Bendis, and Mike Allred. And here's the best part. Everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash marvelbythemonth is helping to make the show happen, period. We couldn't do this without them, and we wouldn't want to. If you'd like to support what we do here and help ensure we can keep doing it, please head to patreon.com slash marvelbythemonth and sign up today. Let's go ahead and just jump into uh, Tomb of Dracula number one. Uh, The story is called Dracula. Uh, It's written by Jerry Conway. It's plotted by Roy Thomas and Stan Lee uh, from a, well, I'll get into the plotting credits in just a second. Uh, The art is by Gene Colan. Um, By the way, the the letterer is John Costanza. Thank you very much. Yes. Even though they call him John Costa here. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we, we got to work with with John uh, John Costanza all through our run on Swamping, and yeah, one of the best great. in the business, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this, yeah, so, this is Gene doing his own inks, right? Yes, so, penciling and inking, yeah, yeah. which is um, very unusual. Yeah, for Marvel at the time, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, so so as we mentioned uh, a few times on the show so far, you know, the Comics Code revisions of '71 uh, made it possible for. Uh, comics publishers to tell stories about uh, monsters as long as they were classic and literary. Um, so, uh, and then the CCA would still, you know, slap the seal on the cover. Um, so, uh, you know, Tomb of Dracula certainly falls into that category based off of, you know, the character in the Bram Stoker novel. Um, and it was in the works for a while. Um, it was hyped in the bullpen's bulletin, uh, bullpen bulletin's page of uh, comics with a July 71 cover date. So this is, you know, they were starting to hype it up for about six months uh, before it actually hit the stands. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to I'm, I'm going to share what wow, I know. About- that's amazing. I didn't know that. So the code yeah. didn't the code changes didn't go into effect until February of 71. Yeah, so February 71 is when the code changes happened. Um, but like basically as soon as the code changed, like within two or three months, Marvel is hyping up uh, Tomb of Dracula in the bullpen bulletins because a July 71 cover date would have been like on the newsstands in April or so. July uh, July 71 was the last of those three Spider-Man issues that yes. lost the code. So yeah, right, right. Tomb of Dracula was on the stands the same month of the last of the code busting Spider-Man. That's when they were talking about doing it. That's when they announced their intention to do it. But this didn't hit until I think 72. Yeah. Like very early 72, like maybe January 72, December 71, January 72. So, um, so yeah. uh, So originally um, the plan apparently was that it was going to be a 50 cent comic uh, and the art was going to be by Gene Colan, Bernie Wrightson and Gray Morrow. Wow. Whoa. Which would have been a hell of a thing. Um, Obviously that's got scaled back. um, And as the story goes, Gene Colan really wanted to draw this book. um, And uh, he he told Stan Lee, Stan, I will literally beg for this. Um, (laughs) 
and you know because colin he was he was getting tired of doing the superhero stuff by this point um you know he he did it beautifully um but you know i think we have seen in in a lot of the stuff that we have been reading you know over the especially this last year um you know he he he, uh he's very interested in drawing everything except the superheroes in the superhero books like the cars are beautiful the buildings are beautiful yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) um which yeah yeah. and he was a really weird fit on like didn't he do the first guardians of the galaxy uh i think yes he did yeah Yeah, and that was weird because it showed gene wasn't into science fiction either because that first guardians of the galaxy was a really weird like space comic Mm -hmm. you know yeah um and uh uh he he gave it his all but Mm -hmm. You know, we'd seen through Creepy and Eerie where Colin's forte really was, which was Absolutely. working with Archie Goodwin on horror stories. Yeah. That yep. was where Gene excelled. Iron Man, Daredevil, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, not so much. Yeah. You know? yeah, exactly. Like we just get the we we just read the issue where Daredevil moves to San Francisco um, that Colin illustrated. California, yep. yeah, California yep. move. <laughs> the, uh, We're the, onto something here. All, all the environments are gorgeous. The vehicles are gorgeous. The crowd scenes are gorgeous. And then, like, he gets to drawing Electro or whoever, and he's like, "Okay." You know, the <laughs> only the only Gene Colan Daredevils that I remember enjoying were the ones with was it Stilt Man? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Gene was great with the crazy perspective. Yeah, you know? uh-huh. but yeah, yeah, everything else was like, Ooh. yeah. What are you gonna do? <laughs> yep. Um. So, uh, so Stan, uh, you know, after Colin expressed his interest, Stan gave him the book. Uh, then somehow it was later offered to Bill Everett, uh, and then Colin was just absolutely crushed. Uh, but his wife uh, encouraged him to send Stan some, basically tryout images for Dracula, like audition for this thing um and and so that's what he did um he based him off of uh jack palance in the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde which by the way is one of the great adaptations of jekyll and hyde mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it that dan i never curtis, have but yeah. it, dan dan curtis produced it and it was right on the heels of dark shadows oh, and okay. uh and it was uh just to give you a little backstory it was originally produced in cooperation with um Canadian television. And in fact, when it premiered, I got to see it twice because we got the Canadian TV um, uh, networks growing up in northern Vermont. We got mm-hmm. all, all three. We got the two out of Quebec and the one out of Toronto, Channel 6. And it premiered in the afternoon in Canada as a two-parter, two consecutive afternoons. Then, I think it was a week later, if I'm not misremembering, ABC showed it. In, <laughs> in the evening twice yeah. and Palance is incredible and the hmm. and the makeup on Mr. Hyde was by Dick Smith right creator of the makeup for Little Big Man uh okay. The Exorcist um you know uh Taxi Driver and so on and Dick Smith uh did a very subtle makeup on Jack Palance he made him look like Pan he looked like a satyr mm-hmm. rather than oh. like Mr. Hyde and man, as soon as I picked up the first Tomb of Dracula, I recognized, oh, Colin's drawing Jack Palance. <laughs> um, and for those of you reading Tomb of Dracula now, if you made the connection, you would probably think of the Dan Curtis TV movie of Dracula. But that was made after 
after this. Oh, so okay. Yeah. It was really Gene Colan was the one who went, no, J- Jack Palance would be the perfect Dracula. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. So, and he, anyway. he was absolutely right. Yeah. Cause, and, and, and obviously Stan agreed. Cause like literally one day after he got this one pager with, you know, beautiful full page ink wash uh, illustrations, uh, he called Gene up and he said, you got it. So, you know, Aww. that was that. Yeah. That's great. Um, Colin also, uh, as you mentioned, Rob got, uh, the green light to ink his own pencils, um, for the first issue, which is very unusual, uh, for Marvel at the time. Um, although don't forget Gene inked most of his own work. Uh, he was working for Stan Lee and Atlas back in the early fifties. Yes. You know, Gene mm-hmm. Colin did a fair number of pre-code horror comic stories for Atlas before yeah. it was Marvel. And Gene was almost always inking his own work at that time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hmm. And it's great. I, I mean, obviously, you mentioned earlier, Steve, he's such a, a tough artist ink. Like, you know, it's it's a treat when you get to see him uh, to do his own uh, inks. Um, you know, like Gene, I there's a reason I worked with John Tolliman on Swamp Thing is mm-hmm. I John and I were good friends. We had jammed on a lot of work together during our Hubert school years and our post Hubert school years before Swamp Thing. John was probably the only inker that could have looked at my shitty pencils. <laughs> you know, I would draw with the side of my pencil. You know, I, w- I would like do, you know, shading with the side oh, of sure. pencil. Yeah. Because I knew what John was going to do with it. And John knew I knew what he was going to do. <laughs> yep. Gene Colan's pencils can be really hard to ink. And you can see it in these early issues with Coletta, uh, Ernie Chan, you know, these uh, different inkers struggling with how do we make this look concrete? Yeah. And the whole power of Gene Colan's pencils were they were very ephemeral at times. It was very much about blurring the hard edges of a figure rather than coloring book. Yeah, we saw that with um, Submariner and, of course, Doctor Strange. And then, you know, the person who nailed or I, I think the best inker was Tom Palmer on a lot of. Oh yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Tom Palmer was the match made in heaven with Gene Colan's pencils, but we're not there yet. We dragged. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Coletta takes over uh, inking the second one, which to me suggests that maybe there was some deadline pressure there. Cause you know, Coletta was, you know, one of his reputations was that he was the guy you brought in. He was the cleaner. When you yeah. need. Some, yeah. He, 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 he Got it done, uh, whatever deadline well, you gave Coletta him. was the cleaner, but also bear in mind, and I can speak to this from hard experience, Coletta uh-huh. was actually one of the inkers who would show up in the office. Like, oh, Coletta okay. would pop into the offices. The one time I saw him pop in, he had two women, one on each arm. And it was like, <laughs> what? Yeah, you know, it looked like yep. a, a Martin Scorsese movie. All <laughs> <laughs> but point being, Coletta would actually show up in the office, so it's possible it wasn't a deadline issue. It might have been... Uh, Vincent showed, you know, Vinny showed up, bam, here you go. Uh, When Vinny showed up, he wanted to go home with work. Um, That's also probably how Ernie Chan or AKA Ernie Chua uh, got the issue. Um, In fact, I hope I'm not speaking out of class here, but I will. We're among friends. Um, (laughs) I was told uh, by uh, someone who knew um, and was close friends with many of the Filipino artists at that time that Ernie Chan got a lot of work because he would show up at the offices and see what was available. He also got a lot of work because the editors couldn't tell the Filipino artists apart. Oh my God. And sometimes Ernie would pick up a job that had actually been slated for one of the other artists from the Philippines. And Ernie would just say, no, no, that was for me. 
Uh, (laughs) based on the you know the blinders that a lot of the editors wore like you know they they didn't know alex (laughs) nino from you know ernie chan so um, (laughs) ernie cashed in on the racial bias and yeah yeah. (laughs) the racial bias but also you know uh especially if the editors only worked with one of these people once they may have only talked to them on the phone yeah. And oh. the fact that Ernie would actually show up at the office mm-hmm. was quite an exception. A lot of these artists lived outside of New York. And, you know, my editors, uh, you know, worked with a lot of cartoons that they hadn't met mm-hmm. because I was living in New Jersey, having graduated the Cubert School. I was showing up at the offices looking for work mm-hmm, and right. I got a little taste of of that aspect of it. You know, if mm-hmm. you walked in the right office on the right day when a deadline was blown or there was suddenly a hole in the schedule, you might go home with a job. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, right. And so artists like Coletta, artists like Ernie Chua or AKA Chan, I've seen it spelled both ways and pronounced yep. both ways. Um, yeah. There was probably an opportunistic aspect to it, but also they showed their faces at the door mm-hmm. and, you know, an editor, not just in a pinch, but an editor who just got a complete issue of pencils. Here's somebody who will solve my problem. Yeah. I don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> right. Yep. You know, that's an anchor that just got a job. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're making someone's life easier, you're going to get the work. That's it. Yeah. But I also yeah. emphasize it might not have been a, 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 a racist based myopia. It might be they had never met a lot of the Filipino artists face to face and Ernie Uh, showing up at the New York offices, mm -hmm. uh, you know, allowed him the opportunity to maybe do some role playing that (laughs) could really piss off some of the other artists. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, so, so let's see, we, we have, uh, Gene inking his own pencils with the first issue, Vince Coletta coming in for the second issue. Tom Palmer takes over with issue number three. Uh, we already know how good the Colin Palmer team is. Mm. So, uh, you know, and uh, for this first issue, um, you know, again, as, as the story goes, uh, uh, Stan contributed his usual very brief plot summary for the the first issue. Um, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. <laughs> it's, there's a there's a guy. He's a descendant of Dracula. He goes to the castle. Dracula comes back to life. Right. right. Um, so there's there's Stan's plot. Um, <laughs> Excelsior. Uh, enough said. Got to go. <laughs> Roy Thomas uh, fleshes out into you know maybe a full page or so. Uh, Jerry Conway winds up scripting it. Uh, okay, well let's get into this first issue of uh, Tomb of Dracula. Um, so uh, it starts out. This is a a very classic, uh, you know, very true to the Bram Stoker uh, version of the character. Um, we we open on a gorgeous splash page of the spooky castle Dracula with the title of the story spelled out in lightning and the credits inscribed on the gravestones in the foreground. Oh, that's uh, so metal. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> um, and we have uh, our three uh, main It's characters. also very Hammer films, yeah. I have to tell very, you. Very, right? very The opening film. of Horror of Dracula, don't forget, we're, we, you know, uh, the first Christopher Lee Dracula, you see his tombstone, the name Dracula, and blood splattering on the name Dracula. <laughs> yeah. so. Yes. Oh, yep. yeah. Very Hammer film. Yeah, yeah, you know the whole castle's just illuminated with a lightning flash, um, uh, and so we 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 meet our three main characters uh, who are driving through the rainy night in a rented jeep to get to the castle. Uh, first, we have Frank Drake, uh, who we will soon learn is a descendant of Dracula and the inheritor of the castle. Um, his girlfriend Jeannie, who has no last name, uh, she is the girlfriend of the protagonist. 
not much else. Uh, <laughs> and then we have Clifton Graves, uh, who is Jeannie's ex and Frank's business partner and kind of a piece of work. Um, <laughs> so, uh, of course, I mean, you're driving to Castle Dracula in a rainstorm. Your Jeep is going to go off the yeah. road. That's the yeah, way these that's things part work. Part of the rules, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so our, our three intrepid heroes are left to hoof it back to a small village for shelter. Um, and the locals, uh, they welcome them to town, uh, but they also make it clear that no one's going to take them up to the castle. Um, and that's uh, no one except uh, Otto, who's willing to take them most of the way to the castle. <laughs> he sounds so brave <laughs> uh, until they get like, uh, you know, a couple football fields away. And he's like, well, this I is know, it. I, you walk, you walk yeah. the driveway. I'm out of here. Yeah, I love it so much. Like, yeah, he's got him in there, his horse-drawn carriage. Uh, he tells him, you know, there's more truth to Bram Stoker's tale than most people believe. Uh, also says he's not superstitious, uh, but it's like you can get out and walk the rest of the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also cool, like the sort of uh, amorphous time period that this takes place in. Like you can't yeah. nail down a date. Like the buildings look very old. They're literally driving a horse-drawn carriage to replace yep. the Jeep. Like it's it's all over. Her dress looks like very old and the, yeah, the it's really made. cool. Yeah, it's a, it. Yeah, the, the village itself is still sort of captured in time, uh, captured in yeah. amber, but the. But it's obviously present day for the seventies, you know. Right. This, right. Is also, this is very much typical of vampire films of of the sixties as well, including look at the cleavage on the barmaid. Yes. That's right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right out of a Hammer film, right there. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. You would and, not and, have seen that in a Universal Dracula movie. So. <laughs> and you know, and Gene draws a beautiful woman. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we're we're getting our money's worth here. Um, also, I think that this Transylvania is probably, you know, just real adjacent to Latveria. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you get f- further to Eastern Europe and everything just goes back in time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, let's see. Um, we get a little flashback, um, where we learn that Frank Drake blew through a million dollar inheritance in three years in 1971 dollars, which is for pretty impressive. 40 million? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who <yeah>. knows? <laughs> Um, all his rich friends abandoned him. Um, but when I can't uh, believe he doesn't drink and drew drugs and he went through those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that was inferred, you know? Uh, right. Yeah. It's like one of those, it's like, okay, well look, we're, we're putting a vampire and you know, other things in this book. I don't know if we can also put drugs in and have the code (laughs) approve it. So, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Frank, uh, is, is, he's bemoaning his fate. Uh, then he just kind of casually mentions that he owns Castle Dracula uh, and that Drake is an Americanized version of Dracula. And all of a sudden, Clifton's ears perk up um, and he seizes on the idea of turning Castle Dracula into a tourist trap. Um, and I then have we to s- point out, too, Gene Collins' characterization of Clifton is so amazing in this flashback sequence. In yes. fact, in a weird way, Clifton is the most vivid character in this first issue other than dracula because man those some of those shots of when he's talking are just like he he comes across as a more vivid character than drake does. yeah oh, by oh a absolutely lot. yeah 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 uh just the way he's kind of like sort of hunched over and is you know he's, he's always he's like just just this close to stroking his chin you know <laughs> he's got a very lucky yeah uh lucky yeah move. yep um, and so, uh, we get through a, a series of, uh, diary entries, which, you know, the original Dracula, it's an epistolary novel. This is very true to, mm. uh, the original form. 
uh, we learn that um, Van Helsing impaled Dracula with a wooden stake and ended his curse. So uh, back to the present. Uh, finally, our three heroes make it to the castle. And of course, this is where things get creepier. Um, Frank has this sensation that he's been there before. Uh, Jeannie is spooked by some bats uh, that fly up. Uh, and, and Clifton falls through a rotted section of the floor where he discovers Dracula's coffin. Um, and sure enough, there is a skeleton in there with a big old wooden stake in the chest. And Clifton, like a true dummy, uh, pulls it out and turns his back. <laughs> um, and he, uh, he can, starts. Can any of you name where that came from? No. No. The first, the first thing in the pop culture to have the stake. There was a uh, early 1940s Columbia film called Return of the Vampire with uh, Bella Lugosi. Not as Dracula, as a surrogate Dracula. Okay. And that and also the 1945 House of Dracula with John Carradine as Dracula. Those are the first two films I remember of character pulling a stake out of a skeleton and whoop, the vampire is oh, back. Yeah. So it's not was, what, Bram Stoker. You know, it's not part of Bram Stoker. And right. I can't, can't think of much of anything before that that had that trope. And yeah. uh, th those two movies were on TV forever sure. in the 60s. So yeah. anyway. Oh, and, and I love this, uh, the transformation scene. So, um, you know, so so Clifton pulls out the stake, he turns his back, uh, and then you sort of see, I mean, it, it's it's kind of like this misty apparition of Dracula's flesh uh, kind of regenerating, um, also his fancy clothes. Um, and, uh, you know, Clifton hears some, some clothing rustle. Uh, he turns around, and there's the Lord of Vampires uh, emerging uh, from the mists, um, just such a, a, I mean, it's a tiny little panel on the bottom of page 14. Um, but it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that first panel on 15 was a great Dracula shot. Yeah, it really yeah, is. That really low uh, angle too, for the, the ominous yeah, set and, and yeah. the light yeah. coming from the side of the face. That's like, Oh man. And I'm so yeah. glad we're getting to see Gene ink it instead of, you know, somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Vinny. you know that, <laughs> well, I mean, even just like the way that the backgrounds are done, I mean, in that panel that you just described, Steve, it's like just this really fine line work of these wavy lines. It's like, it implies something, but you're not quite sure what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, he's basically drawing shadow, which is yeah, yeah. really hard to pull off. Um, but he does he, a beautiful job. You could do it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, Clayton, he fires his revolver on Dracula. Of course that has no effect. Um, and, uh, Dracula hurls him into an oubliette, uh, uh, before turning his attention to the sound of genie's voice. Um, how many teenagers could have written the word oubliette in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1971? Like, yeah, right. hey, kudos to you. I didn't even fucking know what an oubliette was <laughs> when I was a teenager. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Dracula, he flies up through the hole in the floor that Clayton fell through uh, and transforms in front of Frank and Jeannie, uh, instantly hypnotizing Jeannie into joining him. Uh, but Frank knocks her out and he wields a silver makeup compact uh, that he gave her to drive Jack Dracula away. Um, so uh, Dracula turns into a bat, flaps into a, into the village, feeds on a local girl who's uh, out walking too late at night. Um, I got one question for you. Oh, yeah. So Drake slaps Jeannie. Yep. 
she's unconscious. And on the next page, he says, and Jeannie's close to dying. <laughs> From what? A head injury? Like, what yeah. the hell did he hit her with? You know, it's like... Anyway. Yeah, yeah. The ladies do not do well in these in these comics. Oh no, they have nope. a rough go of it. They do. Uh, I mean, that's until that's until very... until the Van Helsing show up later yeah. in the run. Yeah. So ah, yeah, all right. Yeah, there's this. Uh, I love the way it starts out with all the the tropes, um, and then where the series winds up going. Uh, it really just well, but there's also some weird tropes like this silver mm. compact thing. Like, yeah, what is that? You know, it's like. It's like, does it work because it's silver or because it's a mirror or yeah, you know, and what, what, (laughs) what? Yeah. Like I'd never seen or read that in any vampire anything before. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yep. But you know, eh, we'll just go with it. Um, You know, (laughs) that barmaid, she doesn't last long. No, No, she doesn't. Yeah. And, and when the locals discover her body, uh, they know exactly what's up. They have been through this before. Um, uh, and like good villagers, they start marching toward Castle Dracula with torches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just what you do there. The, um, the characterization of the guy's face on the top of 20 is awesome. Yes. yes. Oh, Just, yeah. yeah. There's so much personality poured into like this totally random thing. And like, which is interesting a contrast with Dracula, who's very facially like stiff. Mm-hmm. Like it, it just gives him a nice otherworldly like beyond good and evil like he's not cackling through any of this really like he's just kind of calmly going about what he needs to do yeah 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 uh back in the castle uh dracula again tries to feed on genie uh but again he's repelled uh this time by a cross pendant that she's wearing around her neck um and once again you know frank comes in with that compact uh and makes deft use of it uh but frank miscalculates and hurls the compact at dracula <laughs> Uh, expecting it to destroy him. Uh, that seems like a, a really bad miscalculation. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Oh, Frank, you were doing so well. Uh, instead it annoys Dracula. Uh, and he knocks Frank out cold before telling Jeannie to throw her cross away. Um, and so by now, uh, the villagers have made it to the castle. Uh, they start torching everything. Um, Frank comes to as Dracula is feeding on Jeannie and he uses the compact a third time to drive him away you know it's the rule of threes i guess um <laughs> check off compact right <laughs> he rescues uh genie from the flames but oh no she's a vampire now he didn't get to her quick enough um and she sees dracula flying overhead as a bat uh and walks into the mist to follow him as the grief-stricken frank buries his head in his hands uh and that is our introduction to tomb of dracula the um, uh the twist ending uh here which mm-hmm. would have been you know uh at one point unique to comics was already old hat if you were mm-hmm. a, a vampire movie goer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um my friend tim lucas uh just did the commentary track for a brand new release coming out from arrow uh of a blu-ray set of count yorga vampire and the return of count yorga i did oh, the wow. commentary track for the return of count yorga Tim Lucas did the commentary track for Count Yorga Vampire. And in preparation for that, Tim and I got on the phone together. And um, the first uh, movie to have this twist ending was Roman Polanski's Dance of the Vampires, which was released here as the Fearless Vampire Killers. Or, pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck. That was the title. (laughs) Um, And it was Sharon Tate who plays the woman who is rescued from the vampire's castle Oh, and in wow. the last shot of the film, as the hero played by Roman Polanski is cradling her, 
the camera moves in close and you see the fangs and she bites him. Whoa. Um, but, that must have been terrifying at the time. Like the well, first time. Well, it was, but yeah. it was also a horror comedy. Um, the Fearless Vampire Killers is a black comedy take on the Hammer vampire film. It also was not successful. Uh. Um, uh, the film that had the twist ending that was a smash hit, which came out in 1970, so a year or so before Gene and Jerry were working on this issue, was Count Yorga Vampire, which was a huge drive-in hit. Uh, mm. Robert Quarry plays uh, Count Yorga. It's set in California. He's a European vampire who's come to modern Los Angeles. And the twist ending, which was a freeze frame, is, you know, the, the heroine who's the hero who's just rescued the heroine is a vampire. Mm. And then Return of Count Yorga, uh, which was released in 71, um, same twist ending, only gender reversal. So, uh, so, you know, by the time Tomb of Dracula 1 hit the stands, if you had never seen a vampire movie, this would be, oh, my God, what a surprise. Right. <laughs> but if you'd been to the drive-in at all, you know, right. you, you, you were like, oh, that's like Count Yorga. <laughs> yeah. Huh. It's, I mean, that, the uh, the expression on, on her face uh, on the last page, like, it is, like, I mean, this is, what, a 50-year-old comic now. Um, and it still has impact. Like, yeah. when you, when you oh, get yeah. to that, like, the look on her face, the fangs peeking out. Like, but as a horror junkie, yeah. I go, she just turned. Wouldn't she suck all his blood? Like, I mean, you would think. Yeah. yeah it's like, the rules aren't quite in place yet, it feels. <laughs> on, in, or does he taste bad? Yeah. You know, is there right. something we don't know about Drake? I don't know. Right, uh, right, yeah. He'd been rubbing that silver compact all over his neck, probably. <laughs> right, that's, that's got to be what it was. Yeah, um, and so the the sales on this first issue uh, apparently were were pretty good. Um, the fan response was a little tepid. Uh, David Michelini, uh, who would go on to become a Marvel writer, um, he was a, a you know as a lot of future Marvel writers did. I uh, wrote fan letters to to the comics and. Uh, he said, the the only thing I uncategorically liked about number one was the potential of the general concept, a horror mag with a full-length non-reprint story featuring a continuing lead character and a monster at that is something new to today's comics world, and much can be done with that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's a fair assessment. Like, it's a beautiful book, um, but it is sort of like, you know, okay, we're doing a Dracula comic. What does a Dracula comic look like? Like, you know, like they're trying to figure out what are going to be the rules of this thing. You know, how are we going to go about it? Like what, what's the supporting cast we're going to build up around it. Um, we know, hadn't really it, seen yeah. any serialized horror character of any kind in four color comic books prior. To yeah. This. Right. Uh, the earliest one I could find was Jerry Grandinetti did a series called the secret files of Dr. Drew uh, back in 1950 to 52, uh, which appeared in Rangers comics of all places mm -hmm. from Fiction House. Um, and Dr. Drew, of course, was like, you know, a Ghostbuster type character. So mm -hmm. it was the hero being somebody who went out and solved supernatural or horror uh, mysteries. Yes. Michael Gilbert put out a terrific collection of the Doctor Secret Trials of Doctor Drew, and you probably have it right there in reach, right? <laughs> no, I, oh, actually, and then I just, Dick Briefer's Frankenstein. Dick Briefer, right? that's what Dick I was Briefer's reaching for. Frankenstein, yeah. mm -hmm. which yeah. was like mid nineteen uh, forties, so it was pre yeah. pre code horror boom. Um, but the weird thing about Dick Briefer's Frankenstein is the monster was the protagonist villain, and yep. then Briefer changed it to a 
comedy comic. Yes. It was like a kid's comic. Yeah. Um, and the closest thing, you know, my generation would have seen to it would have been the Munsters or the Adams Family on TV. Mm. Yeah. And then about 1952, Briefer turned it back to a serious monster comic. Yeah. Because the pre-code mo- uh, horror boom was on. So really, you know, Dick Briefer's Frankenstein and Grandin Eddie's Secret Files of Dr. Drew are the only real uh, predecessors to Tomb of Dracula. You also had the heat. Which was right. in the back of Airboy comics, which was you know, the first swamp monster in comics was the Heat. Uh, but once the code kicked in in '54, you know that much that pretty much put all she wrote to yeah. any publisher doing anything like Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, Ghost Rider, The Monster Frankenstein. So yep, hmm. yep. It, it's uh, I don't know, like it, it, the uh, you know they're they're working out the kinks here. I think there's a ton of potential in this, you know, and then as we mentioned, the creative team gets kind of solidified, um, you know, and by the time we're a half dozen or so issues in, like you've got Marv Wolfman writing it, you've got Colin and Palmer illustrating it. And I mean, at that point we're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Like it's um, uh, so. Uh, I, I think the point where it really clicked in was with Tomb of Dracula number nine, which was the uh, first issue in Marv's run where Dracula is presented where you see another side of the character, that's the issue yes. where there's a, a, a human being named Dave who helps Dracula and Dracula not only lets him live, but lets him and his girlfriend live. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends with Dracula basically saying, until then you have the protection and friendship of Dracula. That was a new concept right there. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. Okay. Because up until that point, Dracula was just, you know, killing people every issue right. or <laughs> kill people. And yeah. with issue nine, you've got Marv introducing the beginning of the concept of, no, he's an anti-hero, and I'm going to start showing you there are other dimensions to Dracula as a character. And to me, that was really, you know, the first significant issue in the run where it was like, whoa, now yeah. this is interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, like it has to kind of go in that direction. Right. Because I mean, like if this just winds up being an ongoing series about, you know, Dracula, killing yeah, a different an unsympathetic person villain, it doesn't work yeah. to carry that title. Yeah. 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 And as the, the wide eyed 1970s horror ingenue of the podcast, uh, <laughs> like I. <laughs> like, I didn't know what issue two was like is Tomb of Dracula like um a device like a, a conceptual device where like next week maybe we follow the girl he turned into a vampire or like oh right maybe exactly. this maybe this whole title is frank drake's ongoing adventures which seemed odd too and yeah because like dracula didn't have much of a personality in this beyond like the what you know of him already mm-hmm. so I, right yeah it's it, it it was like oh i wonder what this exactly is and it sounds like actually you know at, good point jamie i mean as of issue two nobody has personality you know clifton turns into you know, the Renfield, the surrogate Renfield character. Yeah. Right, um, right. Who is actually more like Willie Loomis in Dark Shadows, <laughs> the character played by John Karen, including uh. Dracula just slaps the shit out of him and, and <laughs> yeah, berates yeah. him yeah. incessantly. <laughs> you know, you squirming worm, you are beneath my contempt. And Jeannie, you know, snuffs it by the end of issue two. Yeah. She's, yeah. Yeah. she's yeah. gone yeah. to dust. And Frank yeah. is just sort of this cipher. Like, who the yeah. hell is yeah. Frank Drake, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. It, well, I... Uh, Great transition. Uh, Jamie, would you like to tell us what you learned about Tomb of Dracula number two? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Uh, this is The Fear Within, written by Jerry Conway, art by Gene Colan, and Vince Coletta. 
So uh, it's a darker and spooky night where Frank Drake and notably not smart guy Gort are on foot. <laughs> not really sure where Gort came from, but uh, they were looking for Dracula. They're uh, they're holding a lamplight looking out for revenge. Um, it looks like Victorian England again. So everything's really like atmospheric and spooky. Uh, they stumble across a tunnel that leads to the title of the book, Tomb of Dracula. Uh, I love it. I love yeah. it when a, a movie or a TV show or a comic says the name of the book in, you know, it's great. Mention, <laughs> mention the title. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, everybody take a drink. Yeah, you hear the bell thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they found the Where tomb. Where did the name Gort? You know, I, the only what? Gort is from the day the earth stood. I was going to say, yeah. Robot, you know, Gort. <laughs> Clatu Barada Nico, you know, it's like, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so they, st- uh, right, right. So they found the tomb. Um, they do a little quick recap of last issue. We need to go into that. Um, it's like efficiently laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, afterward, they find their jerk friend Clifton hiding at the bottom of a non-metaphorical hole where Dracula had, I guess it was just like kind of saving him for later because mm-hmm. he went yeah, out. It's like the human storage. Yeah, it's it's this human cellar, right? You know, like a wine cellar. That was very much an Italian horror movie thing from the sixties. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, well, the movie to check out if you want to see kind of where it starts is uh, a great Italian horror movie that was released here in America as Black Sunday, starring Barbara Steele. Oh, and yeah. it's kind of the first vampire movie I can think of where there's a pit where characters keep being thrown into the pit. And you don't know what the hell happens to him. <laughs> and at a key point during the climax, you know, one guy who's been thrown into the pit actually manages to crawl up to pull the evil vampire assistant down into the pit. And you uh, still don't know what the hell happened to him. <laughs> it was kind of an Italian horror movie shtick in the 60s. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he's been down there for, it seems like, three days uh, with just nothing but a bunch of bones. So he's, like, understandably pretty shaken up. Uh, in the face of all this psychological and literal horror, Frank's decide that he decides they're going to steal Dracula's coffin. Um, I admire their moxie. That was like a pretty <laughs> brave plan, considering what's been going on. It's like he may have gotten my girl, but we've got his coffin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and by the way, we're done with Gort now. Gort's out of this comic. He's we're, we're done with him. He's gone for good. Actually. Yeah. Uh, so then we cut to uh, d- it's a misty night elsewhere uh, where Dracula is uh, successfully hunting a woman for dinner. Um, as I said before, the ladies do not fare too well in this title so far. <laughs> not yet. Um, he then tracks down an old minion who is now kind of an older man. Uh, he's a doctor and Dracula's coming to him. He wants some help looking less like classic Dracula. Uh, and apparently the caption says they spend hours doing experiments on Dracula and but then they can't fix the problem of Dracula not appearing in mirrors. And apparently this is the guy who betrayed Jack- Dracula originally and almost got him killed, stabbed in the in the shoulder. Yeah, so, when he was a boy. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Dracula gobbles him up. Uh, I, I thought this was totally surprising because I thought they were setting this guy up to be the new Renfield or Guillermo or you know, like, yeah, I thought he was going to be supporting cast. Um, nope. nope. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> nope. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, yeah, oh, I, I thought this was of note. Uh, Dracula leaves looking exactly the same as when he came in. So, so I wasn't really sure what was going on here. So I think this is a coloring error. Um, I think at this point, like after they do all their experiments, I think Dracula is meant to have a Caucasian flesh tone. Um, because that's basically like by issue number three, that is how he appears. Oh. Um, so I think this is where that was supposed to happen. And I think it just for whatever reason, didn't happen. Just got mad. Maybe it's like 
Andy Warhol's Dracula, where Udo Kier is painting his face and his hair at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, doesn't look dead. <laughs> um, so after that, uh, Drake and Clifton do some classic airplane coffin smuggling, um, and they've already sold Dracula's castle, which is another thing that I totally assume would be like an ongoing plot element to this book. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. Can I ask? Can I ask one thing? And as somebody who watches Steven Seagal movies, I know this is a dumb question. <laughs> How do you smuggle? Like Clifton <laughs> smuggles a handgun through customs. Yeah. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and then they smuggle a coffin through. Like, how do you get a coffin through customs? I, I just. I, I, I can know. answer the fir- I can answer the first one. So um, you can not, not that I smuggle a lot of guns through uh, customs. Whoa, if anyone's hi. asking, um, but no. Uh, so we actually so w- when we do our regular episodes uh, each month, we'll do like a historical recap of you know things that were happening in the world. And so although there had been like a ton of airplane hijackings, mostly to Cuba um, in the years before this, like the FAA had just gotten around to saying, it's like, okay, look, starting in July of 1972, we're going to check everyone for guns. <laughs> um, but they hadn't started doing it yet. So it's like, I think when this was written, I think you could still just walk onto a when plane When did with a they gun. start checking you for coffins? Is what <laughs> <laughs> the coffin I can't explain. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'd, uh, so just put a crate yeah. around it and say it's a you know armoire or something, and there you go. Or it's full, <laughs> it, or it's filled with guns. No, this is just how I transport a guns. large amount of guns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no problem with guns. <laughs> um, so then, even more later, in a hotel room back in London, I, this takes place in London. I'm, I, I'm guessing. I, was I a think so. Confused yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank, he's feeling pretty nervous. Uh, he hears a noise and goes to check uh, in the bathroom behind a shower curtain. I, th- this is scary. Like, have you ever done? I feel like a lot of people have had that moment or at least you've seen it in movies. But, you know, and then you whip the curtain back and there's nothing there. And you're like, Ugh. and then you, maybe you turn around. I actually just you. find the toilet brush. Though. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Yeah. OK. Uh, so he but he pulls back the shower curtain and instead of nothing, he finds the presumed dead genie. Um, yeah. She's wearing a revealing red bathrobe. On this page, she's actually being pretty normal, um, besides having manifested in a shower somehow. Um, <laughs> but he's not buying it. He's not buying her acting normal routine. He, like, Captain Kirk manhandles her a little bit and he yells at her pretty reasonably about her probably being a vampire. Um, at this point, a noticeably wasted Clifton enters. He seems pretty friendly and happy to see Jeannie. Um, and so Frank's yelling at him, too. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. a nice dynamic shift in the whole thing. Like Frank Frank being wasted. Because now he's like a happy-go-lucky guy. Whereas before he was like oh, yeah. skeevy and, and being a jerk. I love Clifton's drunk face yeah. Yeah. On, uh, on page 10. <laughs> <laughs> the half one eyelid, half shut is just, you know, sells the drunk. Yeah. Well, and yep. him, him like leaning against the doorway, his shirt's yeah, all yeah, untucked. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like really nice details. Uh, Frank then uses the cross on Jeannie. She recoils, um, it, it, possibly because this is like the brightest thing we've seen in the fir- in the, like the fir- one and a half issues so far. It it looks really holy. There's like light shooting out of it. Um, and then we cut to uh, uh, like external shot. We see Jack the Ripper, or not Jack Dracula, looking like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Drack the Ripper. Yeah, yeah nice. Uh, he hears Jeannie shouting. He assumes she'll figure this all out as long as she sticks to their plan. Meanwhile, he wants a snack. So he stalks a woman into a bar. She turns out to be a pretty charming character. He turns out to be a pretty charming character right back, and he buys her a drink. 
And I was like, oh, maybe this is where this book's going. Like, he's kind of like, can be a cool guy generally. Um, then thick accent having and jaunty hat wearing local Bart objects to Dracula trying to steal his bird. Uh, so they fight briefly and then Dracula smacks him in the face with his cane and the dude goes flying. Yep. By the way, this whole sequence is right out of the Dan Curtis, Jack Palance, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde. I is was, it? I was wondering yeah, if this came from great, somewhere. There's yeah. a couple of great bar scenes with Mr. Hyde and, and this whole sequence is right out of that where Mr. Hyde, you know, completely wastes somebody in there. Um, yeah. One of my favorite lines of dialogue from any 60s horror movie is uh, uh, Palancis Hyde tracks down one of the guys he's had a skirmish with in a bar once or twice and he pulls out his uh, cane and he's got a sword in it. Uh-huh. Nice. <laughs> and he says, no one's ever going to want to look at you again when you have a slit for a face and he brings the sword up <laughs> and oh, this is on TV, but the guy puts his hand over his face and blood just starts running between his fingers. And uh, anyway, awesome. this mo- this two or three page sequences, I'm sure Gene Colner was like, ah, oh, I'll do that. Mr. Hyde scene from <laughs> yeah. Jack. Version. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it got him the job. So uh, why not? Why stick not? With it? Yeah. 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 Just like the personality. Yeah. It seemed like a very realized sequence. Um, yeah. And his yep. personality uh, meter like jumped up 20, 20 spots. Like, yeah, yeah. You get like, to see oh, okay. charming Drac, and then you get to put him over with some of his, you know, strength. So yeah, right, yeah. right, and kind of like Aristotic, uh, like the fancy, fancy man, fancy gentleman uh, yeah. fighting. You know, yeah. And I also got to say, uh, you know, we have certainly give given uh, Vince Coletta his fair share of uh, criticism uh, (laughs) over the course of the show. But one of the things that Coletta does really, really well, he did it. He does it in his own art and he does, he focuses on it when he's inking someone else too, is like he inks and draws women really, really well. Um, Like they're really gorgeous. Uh, So I think both Jeannie earlier in the issue um, and the woman who Drax's trying to pick up here, like uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's some of, uh, his best work. Well, think, bear in mind shoot. too, by this point in time, both Gene Colan and Vince Coletta had drawn a lot of romance comic stories. Mm, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah, that aspect really sings in these pages. So, yeah. I mean, they, they, they know the power of having vertical contour lines on a woman's sweater. Like, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, if right. you're going to, if you're going to draw uh, a woman, yep, but at works. the same time, you know, like on page mm-hmm. 16 panel two, Mm-hmm. You know, Vince Coletta did a pretty good job capturing the expression on that face. And he did, yeah. Trying to cop Gene Colan's line work, which is not something that came naturally mm. based on Coletta's other inking work. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are panels here that kind of stick out like sore th- thumbs of, well, he didn't catch that one. But some of them, like that one, is like, whoa, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, so after the bar fight, um, Dracula classily escorts this young woman out of the bar and then immediately eats her neck in an alleyway. <laughs> the, uh, the villagers all look on in horror. Then Dracula heads up to the hotel room that he strategically rented directly above Frank's hotel room um, and informs us that it's not the coffin that matters. It's the soil from his homeland that, that that's what really counts. But uh, kind of whatever, he's going to seal his coffin back anyway because it's his. Um. Back in Frank's hotel room, things start getting kind of weird here. So Gene is now very seductively tied to a chair and telling the presumably still drunk Clifton that Frank's gone crazy and she's actually been in love with him the whole time. 
So then Clifton pretty quickly drugs Frank's coffee, which kicks in immediately. Um, and then and he knows she's a vampire at this point. Like yeah. He sees her lack of reflection in the mirror. He's like, whatever. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Um, yep. I think between his drunkenness and I think she's like ramping, uh, hip, being hypnotized is usually kind of a binary thing. But I think in this mm-hmm. case, they're slowly like turning the crank up a little bit. I think mm-hmm. he's like a Most little. Clifton's hit. a dick. He's a dick. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. right. So. Right. <laughs> Um, so yeah, after, uh, Clifton frees genie, um, bat Dracula flies in through the window. Clifton now in like fully hypnotized mode is escorted into the bedroom. Um, uh, it was like a kind of a weird moment here. Like, I'm not sure who I'm rooting for at this point. Like, do we want, are are we on team Dracula? It feels like maybe we are a little bit. I I mean, his name's on the book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just like an odd place to be. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, anyway, so, um, Jeannie asks, uh, Frank to come closer so that she can kiss him while Dracula stands like really close to them. Uh, it's a weird Frank, pee-pee it, bedroom scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was the seventies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then, uh, I have to point out as the old geezer in this group <laughs> that, you know, the seventies had nothing to do with it. You, know? <laughs> you look at old movies from the twenties, the thirties, the forties. Oh, yeah. You you read any Wonder Woman comic, you know this this uh, weird kinky bedroom bondage shit goes way Has, back. <laughs> always always been with us <laughs> way back. Um, so yeah, interrupting this sort of sexy murder scene, uh, Frank, who I guess has recovered from the the poison. Um, he comes at them again with the cross this time, but it, it doesn't do any good. Uh, Jeannie orders Clifton to to kill Frank, uh, and then Frank punches out Clifton. It, it's a really dynamic-looking punch. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just I thought that was really cool. There's no background mm-hmm. to speak of, so you're really like you're drawn into the the action of the moment. You know, based on issue one, that must fucking kill him, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get this Sorry. man to a hospital. <laughs> Pardon my language. Sorry about my friends. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a really violent panel. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, so Frank punches out Clifton in self-defense. Dracula attacks Frank, screaming that they could have been allies. Uh, Gene goes full vampire face, tries to either turn or eat Clifton. I'm not sure there. Uh, but Frank ends the ends the threat uh, by using some pointy wood to penetrate her from behind. And then with the light of Careful dawn. Careful how you say that, <laughs> yeah. Jamie. Uh, I know. Hey, it's a vampire story. That's what we're Careful. talking about. <laughs> it's all a metaphor. Yep. <laughs> Notice how Gene gets around the code here, too. I mean, the one thing missing from Tomb of Dracula, a vampire comic, is blood. Yeah. There is like no yeah. blood in oh Tomb my gosh. of Dracula. Yeah, you're totally right. I actually meant you to know? call it out when he killed the woman from the bar. No that, blood. No yeah, blood. You don't even Gene see is it. playing a very strategic game of you know and so with that spectacular panel three on page 20 look how he positions genie's arm to follow the trajectory of the stake from going into her back right Right. yeah you don't see it coming out the front right so the Mm -hmm. impact is what he communicates without breaking the code rules Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, it's super clever gene by now had been surviving with the code since 1955 so he knew even with the code change i gotta be careful yeah. yeah, right. And the the other murder is was really well done too because it's just like legs. I think you see it from the like the knees down. Right. Yeah, right. And the implied the, horror. Yeah, and yeah. you see her crumble mm-hmm. like her knee just goes you know uh, horizontal. Yeah. 
yeah, so so Genie seems to be done. Um, with the light of dawn fast approaching, uh, Dracula makes some discouraging uh, comments, turns into a bat and flies off. It sort of looks into the sunrise, but I'm assuming he's just going upstairs to his uh, hotel room. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Gene starts turning to dust, uh, but tells Frank not to worry uh, about uh, et- ending her eternal kind of sexy life. And he thanks her. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, she thanks him for ending the pain that she was apparently in. Um, and then Clifton like sobs and claws at the walls. Frank sinks to his knees in anguish and uh, the voice hour uh, voiceover vows revenge. And then we cut to an image of a new day starting. Uh, there's an image of a clock and a, a presumably stone horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like a weird bit of imagery to end on. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was really cool. I, I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed this issue. So we have uh, two out of two issues. Frank uh, ends it on his knees uh, in you know total and utter grief. So we'll see if he can keep that streak going <laughs> uh, in future issues. But yeah, the the, la- the last four pages of this uh, story, like the the velocity and the violence and the action, um, is just it's so well done. Like. There's it, it, everything leading up to it is very restrained. It's a lot of small panels and everything, and then he just cuts loose, uh, and it's you know so much like frozen moments of you know people leaping at other people and uh, you know things going flying, and uh, it's just I really loved it. I loved the pacing of it all. And, and I would love to yeah. know, uh, and I know we're not jumping ahead to issue three because that's your next mm. show with somebody else. Um, <laughs> I would love to know if all the shifts in issue three were because of Archie Goodwin. Hmm. Mm, yeah. You know, because this issue, you know, is this Jerry Conway sort of shooting his wad? Mm-hmm. I'm done with Dracula. Mm-hmm. Or right. was the introduction of Rachel Van Helsing and her, you know, mute sidekick. <laughs> is that <laughs> something that was part of what Roy and Jerry had planned? They were going to go there anyway. Right. Or was this Archie reading the first two issues and like you guys have said repeatedly, wow, the women really get the short end of the stick. I better introduce a kick-ass woman character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Counter yeah. Because suddenly Rachel Van Helsing shows up on the third page of issue three and we're in a whole different series. Yeah, huh. very much. Yeah. I mean, it could be a little column A, a little column B, honestly. Um, I mean, we have we've seen um, a fair amount of Archie's uh, Marvel stuff by this point. Um, and whenever he comes onto a book, uh, it's, it's just cause for celebration because it's like, oh, everything is going to, everything's just going to be better now. Oh, yeah. yeah um, right. Well, right. and, and as I told and, you, and Archie yeah. could look at a story in progress and put his finger on right where something was missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was in the room with him when he did that for me. And it's just like, it's whoa, this guy's story sense is like a million percent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, Anyway, yeah, we learned, fantastic. I think, the greatest appreciation after slogging through I don't know how many Iron Man issues and then seeing Archie come onto that series and suddenly there were good Iron Man stories. Uh, you know, it was about something yeah, all of a yeah. sudden. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, well, uh, so that's that's Tomb of Dracula, uh, number one and two. Um, so uh, the only thing we have left to do now uh, on this show is to share our astonishing takes, uh, which are our recommendations for things that our listeners might want to check out that are not Marvel co- uh, horror comics from. I'm ready for you. Late 1971, <laughs> early 1972. Um, the the one that the recommendation I'm going to make 
uh, is a graphic novel called Graven Eye, um, which is uh, written by Sloane Leong and illustrated by Anna Bowles. I thought this would be a good time to mention um, this 2021 book, uh, which is a very dark tale of love and death and obsession and hunger and everything that goes into a good gothic horror story. Um, There's only three characters in the story. Uh, We have Isla, who is a mysterious woman who lives alone in a large mansion in the woods. Marie, uh, who is a young woman who Isla hires for the impossible task of keeping this creepy old house tidy. Uh, and Marie's husband, who is not a good man. Um, and the book is narrated by the house um, in a very classic, you know, House of Mystery, House of Secrets style. Um, uh, and it just dispassionately observes uh, this tragic triangle as things move toward their inevitable ends. Uh, it is consistently chilling and horrifically beautiful. Uh, and I really loved it. Nice. So. Yeah. Rob, what have you got? Oh, well, I don't think I've mentioned this. I've mentioned the comic before, but I don't think I've recommended it. Uh, But from the land of the goon, there comes the Lords of Misery, uh, published by Albatross Funny Books in 2021. Um, I think of it as Eric Powell's version of the Defenders or the Invaders or the Suicide Squad. Um, It's uh, very much in the in the goons universe every 100 years a team of the meanest dregs of humanity are unwillingly made to fight an ancient evil to keep it at bay and every 100 years it kills all of the assembled team uh but this time the team consists of the goon his pal frankie roscoe the boy werewolf el diablo and the Atomic Rage, which is like an old golden <laughs> age hero from their universe that hasn't, you know, it was what a great name for a golden age yeah, character. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so they they might have a shot at stopping the evil and not dying. Um, and yeah, since it's in the Gooniverse, it's a hilarious blend of old timey sayings, swearing and absurd violence served up with an abiding understanding of golden age comics classic horror elements and Lovecraftian grandeur. So, uh, and when I'm reading it, my brain is always running like Tom Waits songs and 1920s movie scores uh, just because it, it <laughs> sort of vacillates between this, like, you know, rain dogs, Singapore kind of weirdness and, um, and painting those scenes. And then this, these like big punches of the, the golden age, you know, um, of, of sound and, and sights. Um, so come for the comedy and stay for the unspeakable horror. And it ties very well to <laughs> the, uh, the, the tomb of Dracula, you know, kickoff too. There's some, some elements like that. Nice. Sweet. Uh, I did speaking of literal and metaphorical and maybe even cultural monsters. Uh, I watched the first two episodes of the rings of power on Amazon, the Lord of the Rings show. Hey, it's a good show. It's super expensive. It looks beautiful. <laughs> it certainly does not deserve a 6.5 because it has black people in it. It's awesome. Is it's, that, are yes. they just getting dragged? For yes, that? they're getting oh. dragged for excessive diversity. You think which any is, show with trolls, dwarves, and dragons I, yeah. people could stretch their yes. imagination? It's like, that's the line you can't right. cross? Yeah, yes. really, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. like the, the whole, I'm not, I'm really not a big Tolkien fan. I, I have enjoyed the movies, but I don't have the deep passions about it. But like, as far as I can tell, the movie is about a bunch of different species that come together, species or races or whatever, that come together to fight bad stuff, monsters, if you will. And like, why, what, I, 
like, I'm so far from being able to understand people's problems with this that like I wanted to bring it up <laughs> yeah. as my recommendation for the week. It's a great show. <laughs> it looks gorgeous. It's a fun uh, epic fantasy adventure. Nice. The end. Steve, what do you got for us? Well, I got two. I got one that's uh, the old geezer recommending some old comic you've never heard of. And the other one is the current work. Uh, I'll start with the current work because of what Rob mentioned. One of my current favorite graphic novels is Eric Powell and Harold Schechter's Did You Hear What Eddie Gein yeah. Done? Which is an amazing piece of uh, journalistic biographical horror. I mean, it is a phenomenal graphic novel. And uh, Eric really, you know, reigns his baser instincts in and, and, and tells a straightforward story. And Harold Schechter, the author in the book, which is probably unknown to most comic readers, is the guy who's written probably more biographies of serial killers than anybody for mainstream publishing. And uh, he wrote the book on Eddie Gein about 25 years ago. And for Eric Powell to join up with uh, Harold Schechter is historic in and of itself. Wow. So, yeah. But the vampire tie-in with Tomb of Dracula. I'm going to go <laughs> back in time. You got to go into the back issue bins and look for a monster magazine called Cracks for Monsters Only, number seven. This is Crack Magazine, right? The We Wish We Were Mad magazine. magazine. Crack Magazines for Monsters Only, number seven. It was cover dated April of 1969, which means it was on the newsstands like February of 69. It features the second installment of the writer Otto Binder and artist Jan Jerry Grandinetti's very short-lived comic series, Secret Files of Mark Van Goro. And the installment in issue number seven is called uh, Vampire Hunt number 69. And it involves Count Dragula (laughs) preying on hippies in the Haight-Ashbury section (laughs) of San Francisco. So this is a contemporary vampires, hippies uh, horror story and it was uh, written, drawn, and published before House of Dark Shadows, Count Yorga Vampire, Tomb of Dracula. To my mind, that Vampire Hunt 69 is a key moment in horror comics history that nobody has paid attention to. Uh, it also anticipates entire sequences in the movie House of Dark Shadows, where the police have to wield crosses to fight this horde of vampires. Cool. And it also predates the Carl Kolchak, the Night Stalker, by two years, almost three years. So uh, Otto Binder and Jerry Grandinetti's Secret Files of Mark Va- uh, Van Goro, Vampire Hunt 69, key moment in comics history that predates the code change and uh, Tomb of Dracula. And they got away with it because it was in a black and white monster magazine. They didn't have to submit it to the code. Nice. Wow. So track it down for Monsters Only number seven. Cheap if you can find it, even if you're a monster magazine collector, but good luck finding a copy. Um, wow. So. I, I've literally never heard of that. I'm going to have to track that down. Yeah. I had to do my job, right? You got <laughs> here for a yeah. reason. So. Thank you so much. We should yeah, try and get all of them. We should try and get all the remaining issues. Go to the market before yeah, this episode yeah, comes yeah. out. <laughs> they, actually, they did three in all. Otto Binder and Jerry Grandene. They did a Frankenstein 68 and a Jekyll and Hyde 1970. So, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wow. All in for Monsters wow. Only. 
Wow. Well, Steve has said it has been such an honor and such a pleasure to talk with you about these comics. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. Um, is there anything that you are up to these days that we can uh, point our listeners toward? Sure. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work that people in comics have no idea about. Um, I've been writing a lot of books. The most recent two books I had a hand in is I did a 700-page book on David Cronenberg's movie The Brood from 1979. It's Whoa. called The Midnight Movie Monograph, David Cronenberg's The Brood. Here, I'll pick it up and show it cool. to you. Uh, <laughs> wow. 700-page book. All That's a big boy. Uh, I'm also doing a series of uh, monster sketchbooks, brooding creatures, and thoughtful creatures. These are available on Amazon as print-on-demand, and you can get them as a budget-friendly black-and-white edition, a slightly more expensive paperback, color black-and-white, or you can go for the hardcover, which is like 30 bucks. Cool. Um, That's awesome. And I've been doing a lot of Blu-ray uh, commentary tracks and bonus features um, for films like the upcoming uh, Arrow film set of Count Yorga Vampire Return of Count Yorga, uh, I did commentary tracks with my friend Mike Dobbs for Fritz the Cat, the 1971 X-rated Ralph Bakshi cartoon. Um, I've done commentary tracks for some Russian fantasy films, Sampo and Ilya Moromets. Uh, commentary track for The Monster from Green Hell, one of those 1950s giant bug movies. Um, <laughs> and a lot of other stuff like that. And I just signed with Abrams Books. I'm working on a collaborative graphic novel which is going to take us about three years to complete. Uh, it's a totally original work called Night Comes Walking. Um, it was the creation of uh, artist John Jennings, and the author is Nalo Hopkinson, a fantasy award-winning uh, author. And they invited me in about three summers ago. They called me up out of the blue and said, hey, we're working on this project. We'd like to do it with you. And I ended up contributing enough story ideas that um, we're equal partners in the thing. And this is probably going to be my last graphic novel. Um, but bear in mind, it's only my second graphic novel. The first one was <laughs> 1941, the illustrated story before anybody used the word graphic novel. Right. So, <laughs> but anyway, that's what I'm up to wow. these days. So. Wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, quite a I, spread. I know. I can't wait to check that stuff out. Um Thank you again, Steve, so much for, for joining us. Um, and once you, uh, listeners, once you've had a chance to get all the stuff uh, that Steve just told us about, um, just save $4, $4 for us. Uh, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Marvel by the month and get exclusive content like a much longer version of this episode. You could review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever you use to listen to us. Uh, if you'd like some free stuff in the mail, send us a screenshot of your five-star review to marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at marvelbythemonth, and marvelbythemonth.com has links to our other social channels as well as our shop. So that is it for now. Uh, my name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Milne. And I'm Jamie Winger. And you'll see us next month, true believers, unless you're looking for us in a silver mirror compact. <laughs> uh, until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics if you dare. Ooh. <laughs>